take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, as we talk about the time of God and the reality of God and the love of God and the sovereignty of God, and what an appropriate way to begin a worship service by talking about the holiness of God. You know, when we talk about the holiness of God, oftentimes we define that word as God being perfectly righteous, absolutely pure, and certainly of impeccable moral character. Yet at the same time, when we focus upon the holiness of God, it means considerably more than that. And unfortunately, when a culture, and even his church, fails to understand the true essence of holiness, there are ramifications and consequences that are, that are dire. See, when we sing and celebrate the holiness of God, we are celebrating the fact that God is separate, holy other. He is transcendent above all that we know, above all that we experience, about, above, above everything in this life and world. And in this transcendence, He is a far above all things and worthy and deserving of our praise, not because He's morally upright, although that's part of it, but because He is His God. The theme of holiness in the first couple of songs or all three songs that we sung about this morning is critically important to the text this morning. If you've been here for any length of time, you understand that the grand hymn, Holy, 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 is very meaningful to me. In fact, it is probably one of my favorite songs of all time because it puts some things in perspective for me, things that we all learned together a number of years ago when we reflected on Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah's glimpse of the holiness of God as God revealed Himself to him. If you recall that passage of Scripture, the description of the holiness of God is glorious, and the response of Isaiah was priceless. Woe is me, for I am a man undone, raveling and coming apart in the presence of His holiness. That's what it means when it says that He is holy. He is absolutely other and transcendent and beautiful and sovereign and glorious, and no one counsels Him, no one directs Him, yet He orders our steps and tells us that all things are good. See, when we celebrate the holiness of God, it creates some giant questions in our mind about the nature of life. And if God is truly holy, then why? And that's what the pundit, the, the philosopher, the teacher, the Koheleth, the writer of Ecclesiastes is dealing with this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Before we get there, from time to time in the context of our ministry, we've received notes of encouragement and, and letters from our members and some outside of our ministry that, that are truly a blessing to us. And recently, we received one just like this from the Heisinger family. Many of you know John and Michelle. 
extended family and much of what they've been through. And they wrote to our First Baptist Johnson City family, our entire family remains overwhelmed and blessed by the love and support shown to us during the most difficult time in our lives. Words cannot begin to express the depth of our gratitude for all of the ways you have consoled us and encouraged us. You're a beautiful example of God's love for one another and a great reminder that we are not alone in our immeasurable grief. We are blessed to be a part of the family of God at First Baptist Church. Now, I bring this to your attention for a really important reason. Sometimes it's easy to think that we're lost or somehow forgotten and nobody knows our pain, but I am amazed at all of the letters and notes that we've received just like this that remind me as your pastor that the body is working and the body is doing what the body should be doing and they're weeping with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. And I read this this morning to thank you as a congregation and to commend you as a congregation for doing what God has called you to do and be as a congregation. Be the body in people's lives, particularly at the time in which they need it most. I'm sure the Heisinger family, as well as many others, are still in need of our prayers, and I'm sure that you have stories and examples of this in your life. Tell those stories. Tell God's people how blessed you are by the ministry and as a congregation and as your pastor. Keep up the good work. It is the ministry of God coming together as a family and blessing each other. Thank you, thank you, and thank you again. As we turn our attention to the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, chapter 3 comes on the heels of the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes pursuing almost a hedonistic kind of approach to life. Almost the carpe diem, seize the day, live your best life now, grab all the gusto that you can, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. He draws the conclusion after that stage of his life as he reflects upon it, this gathering, people that he called together. He talked about that pursuit as being like chasing after the wind of vanity and emptiness and nothing to be gained. He turns his attention then to the wisdom that God had blessed him with, and even that wisdom did not allow him or permit him to sort out life. It didn't give him the answers to the deepest questions in life. It didn't in any way or or fashion bring any kind of satisfaction. Even that, he thought, was a striving after the wind of vanity, and he says so. In verse 17, in fact, in verse 18, he comes to the deepest despair saying, I hated all of my toil in which I toil under the sun. And in the context of all of that, as he looks back and reflects upon his life and the pursuits of his life that he had made a passion of his life to figure it all out, he comes to a simple conclusion, and in some ways he cuts through the clutter And he looks beyond the darkness, and he says, verse 24 of chapter 2, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. 
This also I saw is from the hand of God, and apart from Him, God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? It seems like in a moment of lucidity, in a moment of clarity, he, he, he grasped the bigger issues of life and the greatest elements of life, and it's on the heels of that discovery or at least awareness that he enters into chapter 3, and he begins to address some of those things in the context of life and life's experience, and trying, tries to bring some sense to it all. Now, remember… In our study, and this is going to be important as we move through this text, we see the writer of Ecclesiastes moving back and forth between various roles and perspectives as he's evaluating life and answering some of the biggest questions of life. Two of those are, who am I and where am I going? The final one, what is this really all about? And as he does that, sometimes he plays the role of the cynic or the pessimist and he doesn't see any good, and he sees an emptiness to life, and we read it over and over and over again. But at times in the text, he also plays the role of a hedonist, uh, seize the day, make, make the most of every opportunity, forget about tomorrow, just, just live your life and, and live it up. As he plays the role of that hedonist and pursues it in a way that none of us have been privileged to do so, he finds that too being empty. I think in many ways he is playing the role of the apologist, and he's showing us the absurdity of life under the sun without God, and helping us to realize that there is no life under the sun without God that is containing any lasting happiness or joy or meaning. So he comes to the conclusion in a simplistic kind of way, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, in his labor, in his life here on this earth. And it's a common theme. We can read it again in chapter 4 and then again in chapter 8 and, and then in the end of the book. In fact, in chapter 8, he says, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. It is where we left off last week, finding joy, being thankful for the simple things in life, being thankful for those things that you often overlook, and being reminded that those simple blessings of life, those good things, come from the Father above in which there's no changeableness or, or, or variance or, or, or shadow. In fact, we would proclaim that God is good all of the time, but how can that be true? There's so much pain and heartache and difficulty and disappointment in life. Well, he begins to address that next. He's going to give you some of the reasons why he believes that it is true and that you can enjoy life, but only within certain limitations. And as he moves through this text, he will speak to some of those limitations, and it would be critically important for all of us to heed those this morning. Again, before we dive in the text, let's pray again. Father, there are people here in seasons experiencing times so radically different than the other days of their life and existence, seeing the heartache, the brokenness, and the darkness in life 
unable to cut through the, the darkness, the fog. See your hand of blessing. In fact, I think that all of us here struggle with that from time to time. All of us wrestle with our temporal existence and the times and the seasons that we go through, wondering so many things and seeking to answer so many questions, and in essence, asking the biggest questions in life, who am I? Where am I going? I pray that as He unpackages that on the heels of saying that there is enjoyment in life, there are things to be thankful for each day that that we would understand even in a greater context that, that you're good all of the time, and it is a painful reality that we more often than not can't negotiate. Help us, teach us, show us in a way better than when we came in reveal to us how to negotiate those difficult and painful and burdensome times. We don't wish for them, but we know the reality. We don't long for them, but we know they're coming. And I pray that you prepare us in our hearts and minds to glean and to understand what matters most and grant us the perspective that is not just under the sun, but beyond this human existence, and addressing this empty vacuum in the hearts and souls of people everywhere, there must be something more. Reveal to us and show to us that more for Your glory alone. Bless us for the time that we spend together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of chapter 3. For everything that coaleth pens, there is, a re- there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. As he closes that poetic section, he asks the question, what gain has the worker from his toil? And he concludes, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them to live joyfully, to do good as long as they live, and also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil, for this is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever, and nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it. 
so that the people fear before Him that which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is perhaps one of the most difficult sections of the book of Ecclesiastes, particularly after the poem in the first eight verses. Commentators are all over the place in their understanding and description of a couple of elements of what this Koheleth, this writer, is trying to communicate to us. But I think that sometimes we complicate it more than we need to complicate it, and I think that sometimes we treat Ecclesiastes like an epistle, something that is prescriptive, you have to do this, when in fact Ecclesiastes is descriptive. He is sharing with us what he has wrestled through in life. He's describing the journey that he's on, and he's helping us to understand some of the conclusions that he has come to. And as we go back to the first verse, he says, for everything, and remember, he has been saying time and time again already in the book of Ecclesiastes that he set his heart and his mind to search out everything under the heaven. I am going to make sense of every part of life. And he had the resources and the wisdom and the ability to do it in ways that we never have. He reminds us that no one has been as inclusive and particular in this search and pursuit of wisdom than he has been. And now he says that when it comes to everything under the sun, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. In essence, he is saying in life there are divine appointments. In life, as we go through life, there are seasons appointed times, and there must be someone who appointed them. Otherwise, life is just random. And when life is random, there are no answers to the deepest questions in life. And when he found no answers to the deepest questions in life, he had to conclude that he was looking in the wrong place. So he speaks of enjoying life and, and, and the fruits of our toil And then he concludes that for everything, there is a season and a time, a specific event or activity at a specific time for a specific purpose for everything that happens in our lives under the sun, this temporal existence, life as we know it to be, an appointed time for every event and activity. But what about? He says, no, this is everything. And our mind says, but what about? No, this is everything. And in our Christian minds, we say, but what about the bad? And Nicola says, no, this is everything, even those perceived bad times. And that's exactly where he starts in these series of things that he contrasts and compares, 14 different sets in the next eight verses. Some of it is hard to understand, and again, commentators take a number of different approaches as to what he means there. We'll look at it just briefly and not get stuck there, because there's a bigger purpose for what he is doing as he's convened everyone together and shares what he has learned about the essence of life and its biggest questions. And the biggest question in life that he addressed last week was our own mortality. Remember that? (laughs) I'm going to die, and none of this matters. But then he says, I have realized there is a time to be born, 
and a time to die, and it is appointed. It is a season that we will all go through, a season that we have zero control over, and there's nothing that we can do about it. For some, they've looked at this as very, being very pessimistic, but I think we've missed the point in Ecclesiastes 3 if we think he's playing the role of a pessimist and saying, what's the big deal? I don't think he's saying that at all. And I think the text will bear that out. There is a time to plant and then a time to pluck up that which is planted, whether it's an agricultural harvest or an event, an activity in life, a time to kill. It's not talking about murder. It's talking about just wars and other things and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh. See, the problem with Koheleth early on under the sun is he believed that every day was a time to laugh, and he forgot that life consists of times of mourning as well, appointed seasons of challenge and, and difficulty. But he's come to that conclusion, and he's sharing. And in between these couplets, there is a plethora of other events that take place. Just think for a second, a time to be born and a time to die. Boy, there's a lot that happens in between that, isn't there? A time to mourn, a time to laugh. There's a lot of space in between those two things. Sometimes our tears are turned into laughter, and sometimes our laughter are turned into tears, but they're appointed times. There are seasons that we go through time to cast away stones, time to gather stones together. There's some question about what that means. Perhaps it's, it's the sabotage of someone's field, and then the, the taking of those stones cast into the field, out of the field. I'm not sure that this strict interpretation really matters in what he's trying to communicate. And although these words matter, he is simply making it clear to us that there are seasons and times that are so radically different and so different and separate, that we can't make sense out of them, but all of those seasons, whatever they are, have a purpose, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away. Reminds me of some of your attics and garages, right? time to tear, grieve, then a time to sow, time to heal, a time to keep silence. Boy, we do not do that well. And a time to speak. Our culture despises silence. We shared with you Blaise Pascal saying the real essence of people's problems is they're unable to sit quietly in the room all alone, content and okay. So they fill their lives with clutter. Have you learned to be silent? Have you learned to control your speech? A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. He asks himself the question in verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? Here's what he's saying. We live in this world under the sun and human existence from minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, and yet it is God who sits on the throne in all of His holiness, 
who is the sole determiner of the major events in our life, and there's not a thing, single thing that we can do about it. In one sense, perhaps he's lamenting that in every effort that he made to make life make sense, it didn't make sense, and there was nothing he could do about it. He could order his steps, and he could order his ways, and he could take care of everything that he could take care of, but he came to the realization that there are seasons in life, appointed times, when we don't get what we paid for, and stuff happens. And it's not always pleasant stuff. And he says, there's nothing I can do about it. No matter how much I labor, no matter how much I work, I cannot make sense of it. I cannot grasp the reality of it. I don't like it. There's nothing that I can do about it. And in essence, he is saying that it is God who assigns these times, these times of purpose and meaning in all of our lives, those who who want to read the whole book as if the writer is a cynic and a pessimist, would have to conclude that he's some kind of fatalness, and he's just resigning himself that he can't control anything. Whatever happens, happens. It creates this negative hopelessness and anxiety. He is stuck. Life just happens. There's not a single thing I can do about it, and I don't like it. I don't think that's what he's saying. Particularly in the verses just prior, there's nothing better than to eat and to drink and to enjoy the blessings of life, even in the times and even in the seasons. At least that's how I read this passage of Scripture. But our world is trapped in this fatalism of consequences of behavior and, and, and somehow just living our lives as if it doesn't matter. Some believe that, that, okay, then if there's nothing that I can control and I can't change a thing that happens in my life, I'll just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. That's the role of the hedonist. He's not saying that at all. He just told you in chapter 2, oh, I did that. Still empty. There was nothing there. That's not the answer. There must be a different answer. I think this is a retort to what he's been telling us already. In in, in a glimpse or a moment of lucidity, he's saying, here's what I understand when I ask the question, what is the point of life? All of the effort and labor that I put into life, what is the point if I can't control anything? What happens when I'm locked into a world that I can't shape? And no amount of effort and and no amount of energy on my behalf will change the plan of God. What kind of world is that? I think he's resolved it in his mind. He's asking you, what kind of world is that? Because I've come to the conclusion in the real world, there is a reason and a season and a time and a purpose for everything under the heaven. So, he got, moves from there to, to answer his own question. But for some of us, within this context of, of, of Ecclesiastes, we're, we're thinking that somehow he is saying, everything in life is empty and futile. There is no meaning because our plans are limited and our ability to change our schedules is confined and our potential for affecting our destiny is almost nil. What is the point? Well, the point is, in my opinion, there must be something more. It's not hedonism. It's not cynicism, not pessimism. There must be something more. In all of this, there has to be a reason. You would think that in his human mind, the reason would simply be 
God telling us, well, this is why I did that. But that's not the conclusion he comes to. Because God did not give him the answers he was necessarily looking for. God gave him the answer that I am holy, holy, holy. Your thoughts are not my, not my thoughts. Your ways are not my ways. And you couldn't handle the truth if I told you the truth. But there is a time and a reason and a purpose for everything that I allow in your life. Everything. Why? Because I'm holy, holy, holy. Do you make the connection? So what's the point? Why am I going through all of this? Why am I putting up with all of this? Is life really fatalistic? It says in verse 10, as he begins to answer the question that he poses, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Been there and done that. Now remember, he has worked this out in his mind, and sometimes he's played the role of the cynic, and, and at other times he's played the role as a hedonist, and then and more loose at times he plays the role of the apologist, that he comes to undermine some, some element, some pearl of truth that he's trying to communicate to us. And what he says here is, I have been busy, I have committed my whole life to this, and I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And you say, but he didn't go through what I went through. No, remember what he said? I've had and been through more than anyone in Jerusalem before me. That's not good enough. I don't want to hear your excuses. I've been there and done that. I've searched it out for myself. And here's the conclusion. He, meaning God, has made everything beautiful in its time. And also he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Because he is holy, 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 because he is transcendent in all ways, because he is the perfect picture of righteousness and good, I cannot perceive everything that he does. I cannot think like he thinks, I will not know what he knows, but, but I know that he, meaning God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He goes back to what he says in verse 1. And in essence, he says, no matter where you are, and no matter what the appointed season, God has made that season fitting and appropriate for that time and that day and that season for His glory. But I want answers. Solomon says, there are no answers. So I must rest in the reality that He has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything that happens is appropriate and proper and positive. Everything that happens falls under the sovereignty of God Almighty. And then He says, and He has put eternity in man's heart. And as we live this life, He has blessed us with a sense of concern, almost a sense of urgency at times to, to ask the questions, well, what comes next? Where are we going? 
How come I can't control my life? Why can't I just do what I want to do? I need to be in control. Be careful what you ask for. Because if you've lived any length of time under the sun, you know that your decisions are one step short of a train wreck usually. Sometimes it's a train wreck altogether because we're sinful, desperately sinful. So we need to just rest in this fact that God has planned out not just the day-to-day, hour-to-hour, week-to-week, month-to-month existence. He has eternity mapped out for all of us. He has placed this notion, this eternity in our heart. Let me tell you what I believe that means. When He says He has placed eternity in our hearts, I believe that built into every human life is an innate awareness that there is something bigger, that there's a God somewhere. Even though they don't know where that God is, I believe it's directly tied to the fact that we are created in His image. And I believe that what the Koheleth is saying when he says he put eternity in our heart, he is saying that God has put a longing in our heart. He has put a, a sense of urgency in our heart. He has put this notion that there's got to be something more that gets us past the day-to-day existence the minute-to-minute existence, the hour-to-hour existence, the day-to-day, and it gives us this hope that no matter what the season, the appointed season, God has… He's got that. He knows it. He's planned it. He's in control of it, and He's promised us everything's going to be okay. Perhaps you've heard me say this before. I never tire of saying it. This is as good as it gets. I'm pretty disappointed. There's got to be something more. Aren't you thankful that there is? And God has made everything beautiful in His time for His glory. But what? And that's where life has lived most of the time. There are questions that cannot be answered. There are seasons that cannot be pushed aside. And there are events in life that we wish never happened. And we long for something more. And God whispers in our pain, there's something more. There's something better than today. There's something better than tomorrow. There's something better than your earthly existence. I have created you for me. And your hearts, as Augustine says, are not at rest until they find their rest in Him. Isn't that the problem with our culture today? We want to be at rest, but we want nothing to do with God. It doesn't work that way. You will never be at rest in this unlikely sinful existence without a notion that God has everything under control. He appoints the seasons. It is for His glory. It is for your good. And He makes everything beautiful. It is appropriate and it's right and the time frame that it happens. And He's put eternity in your heart and He's done all of this to show you that there is something more. And what He's drawing your attention to is Himself. That is Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah realizes the transcendent glory of God, he unravels in his presence. It's 
says, I'm a man of unclean lips. It reminds me of Job at the end of his book. I've uttered things I didn't understand. Who do I think I am? God's got this. God has given to every human being a sense that there's nothing in this world that will ultimately satisfy, and therefore there must be something more. And God screams into this world, me, 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 me. But the world doesn't like that answer. God in His grace, in His mercy, in His sovereignty, and in seasons, ought to make you cringe. Sometimes He gives you exactly what you want. Romans chapter 1, we want to do it your way. We're going to do it our way. God gave them over to their sin. It's not a good enough answer that you're enough. That's not what I was looking for. I want something else. God has given over to that seared conscience, that something else, pursuing whatever it might be. That's the world we live in, and it's a dead end, but they can't see it because they've closed off the reality that God has made everything beautiful in this time and has put eternity into man's heart. And the only answer to the deepest question in life is Him. And as much as you pursue that, that answer, as much as you try and make sense out of these seasons, you will never know the mind of God You'll never understand what He's done from the beginning to the end. You'll never figure it out. This is the wisest man who ever existed. It's beyond me. So what does He say about this toil? Verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better than to be joyful, to do good as as long as you live. And also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil and this life that he has blessed us with under the sun. It is a gift of God to you, even the appointed seasons. It's a gift. I don't know if my human mind will ever be able to unravel that. So my human mind must give up the fight, just like the Koheleth, and come to the conclusion that he, he, has appointed a time for everything and a season for everything and a purpose for everything that happens in my life under heaven. And even if I don't know that purpose, I must find my comfort and contentment in the God who has created me and enjoy my temporal existence knowing that a better day is coming, at least for those who are redeemed. Follow me? Some of you are stuck in the same pursuit that he was stuck before God gave him this clarity of thought. He has made everything beautiful in its time and has put eternity into man's heart. We must learn to trust him 
living day to day and taking pleasure in the day and believing that a better day is coming. I don't know about you. This is a challenge for me. (laughs) To live under the responsibility, the sanctity of personal responsibility, but to live each day in spite of my personal responsibility that God is in control of every season in my life. How does that work, faith? It's the only way this works. God is not saying, just sit back. Life happens. There's nothing you can do about it. That's not what He's saying at all. There are all kinds of commands toward diligence and holiness and righteousness and putting off and putting… He's not just saying, just sit there. He's saying, do what you need to do today. I'll take care of tomorrow. Stop worrying about that. Solomon's saying, I spent my whole life worrying about it, and it couldn't change a thing because there's appointed seasons under the heaven. And it's a lesson that we desperately need to learn today. So in the moment, we learn to be joyful. In the moment, we need to, 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 to do good and to live as if He'd want us to live. In the moment, we should eat and drink and, and, and take pleasure in whatever lot we have in life, for it is God's gift. With this attitude of submission and gratitude, we begin to grasp the essence of life. And we give up this notion God just doesn't give us this life to master it and to be the masters of our own domain. He alone is responsible for that. He has given us this life to enjoy the simple pleasures of life. In Proven, in his text, says the biblical view of life is that it's designed to be lived in humility and obedience before God, to accept the limitations that are in place on us as mortal beings still find joy and satisfaction in the ordinary things of life. Have you learned the essence of contentment? I ask you again, do you believe what you sing? You know that little ditty, right? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Solomon, Koheleth, the teacher, saying, this is how that's done. Live your life knowing that God has a purpose and an appointed season for His glory and your good, but everything's going to be okay. And give up trying to figure out and control your destiny because that is in the hands of the God who's created you. What what do we have left? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But it's going to rain tomorrow. Well, I hope tomorrow when it rains, you say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it because we could use the rain, right? See how this works? Just the simple things in life. God is good all of the time. Even in the seasons, that's, in my opinion, where life is lived and our faith is real. And every day and every season… God is good and everything's going to be okay. Boy, is that easy to say today, not knowing what tomorrow brings. Stop worrying about what tomorrow brings and learn today. This is the day that God has blessed you with. Enjoy it and give thanks, for God is good. Paul says in a little different way, look carefully then how you walk, how you live your life. 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Oh, man, do we know that. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What is His will? Give thanks for your blessings today and trust me for tomorrow. For some people, this is a straitjacket. God is boxing me in. There's nothing that I can do about it. What a terrible existence that is. You missed the whole point. If you really understand what he's saying, it is not a straitjacket. It is a security blanket to know that tomorrow the God who is on the throne has everything under control. Isn't that comforting somehow? But I know the human side of it. But if you understand holy, 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 you also understand that there are appointed times and seasons, and all of your worry today will not stop or thwart the plan of God. So, be thankful. For tomorrow brings another day. And although we're trapped in this present time perspective, learn to think eternally about what comes next and encourage your heart. Here's what he says in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. To those of you thinking still you can make a difference here, no, He's God. You don't understand holiness. You can't add to it. You can't take away. God has done it so that people fear before Him. What does that mean? So we learn to reverence, so we learn to worship, so that we experience this unraveling only to be touched by the searing hot coal and assured that everything's going to be okay, because there's a season appointed by God for His glory. We could read in the Sermon on the Mount, which one of you? simply by mere thought can add even an inch to your stature. It's a rhetorical question. Some of you are trying to figure it out. Nobody can, right? He follows it up with just a beautiful passage of Scripture. Consider the lilies of the valley. Consider the birds of the air. I, I take care of everything. I've got a plan for everything. Why are you worried about simple things? So today's sufficient for the evil thereof. Stop worrying about tomorrow. It's what the Kohelis is telling us right here. This is what I've learned. And then it's fleeting. Then it's gone. And he gets on to chapter 4. And then he comes back a little later. And that is the essence of our life. He says, that which is already has been. And that which is to be already has been. God seeks what has been driven away. He is drawing us to Himself. He is assuring us of His goodness. And He is making it very clear that we must find a balance in our lives between diligence and discernment. We must work hard, and we must do those imperatives and those commands of Scripture. We must do what He's told us to do, and yet there has to be this healthy discernment that there are some things that we cannot control and we cannot undo, and we cannot add to it, and we must be able to balance those two things in life, times of activity and times of rest, particularly finding our rest in Him. And isn't that really where life is lived? Every moment of every 
day. That is where life is lived. What does God want me to be doing, and what do I need to give up because I have no control over it? A really difficult and hard lesson if it wasn't for the fact that God has made everything for a particular season and a particular time for His glory alone under the heaven. So perhaps if you're a memorizer of Scripture, when you go home this afternoon, memorize verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. Be still and know that I am God. Holy, holy, holy. You cannot separate your deepest beliefs from the present reality. And I believe in the absolute holiness of God, so I am struggling to live under the shadow of the Almighty, knowing that whatever the season, it is appropriate and timely, and it's for His glory. So I will enjoy today as a blessing from God. and I will learn to fear Him a little bit more than I did yesterday. Because even for a moment, I get it. I get it. Till tomorrow. Same a lot like you. Till tomorrow. But even tomorrow, He's made everything beautiful and it's time. And everything's going to be okay. May God bless you with a powerful reality, no matter what the season of your life might be today. Father, thank you. So humbling, so maddening at times, so convicting when we demand that you answer us and explain yourself. Give us the wisdom of Job. Shall we accept good from God, not, not evil and trouble? Give us the wisdom to know that in the appointed seasons, they're appropriate, meaningful, and fulfill a purpose that we might never know, not even on the other side. Give us this notion of believing that we can impact and find the answers to the biggest questions of life in life itself. Show us your glory and teach us to fear before you, for that is the whole duty of man. May it result in our obedience, and maybe for a fleeting moment you grant us perspective. To God be the glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us? We're going to close our service out.